Well, then let's open up our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 22. A great study tonight as many are approaching Jesus now for some answers. And remember this, when we talk about people approaching Jesus for answers, um, I've had this conversation now with a couple of people from church because we get approached with questions and sometimes the questions are sincere and people really want answers and sometimes people ask the questions because they want to see if we fit into their mold or sometimes they'll ask you the questions simply to trip you up because they want you to be confused in what you believe so that they can tell you what they believe. Okay. Uh, specifically, we've had, um, I've talked to a couple of, of people over the last couple of weeks on uh, uh, witnessing to the Jehovah Witnesses. As we go through these Gospels, you find out that the key to the Gospels is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That's where the spiritual birth comes about. And if you don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that He came down, He was fully God, He was fully man, He paid the price for our sins, and if you don't receive Him as Lord and Savior, then there is no spiritual birth, so you can't possibly receive spiritual truth. You understand what I'm saying? We can't understand the things of God apart from the Spirit of God being given to us and dwelling in us. So... Sometimes you'll go toe-to-toe with people who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him, you'd have life in His name. Well, if they don't believe in that, you're speaking with someone who is spiritually dead. So, first of all, they're not going to understand what you say because you're speaking to a spiritual corpse. Okay, And that, that becomes really hard. Now, that's the situation that Jesus is in as we come into chapter 22. He begins to tell these parables. Now remember, this, this particular parable in Matthew chapter 22, is a, it's a story, okay? It's a metaphor. It's intended to communicate truth by comparison. That's what parables are designed to do. They compare heavenly things with earthly things so that you can get a grasp of what's going on in the spirit realm. So, And this particular parable is about heaven. Jesus is going to um, attempt to describe to these guys, who, by the way, are some of the leaders of the religious group, so they should know about the kingdom of heaven. Now, I look at this and I say, here's Jesus and here's these men who are asking these questions. And I go, if anybody, if anybody would know about the kingdom of heaven, it would be the one who came from heaven. Wouldn't you think? The one who came down from heaven and who is returning to heaven. You, you know, he would know about the kingdom of heaven. So it says in verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, for those of you that are born again, this begins to ring some bells. It's about a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And all of a sudden, if you've been studying the scriptures for any length of time, you're thinking of the wedding banquets in the Bible. Well, there was one in 
John chapter 2, where Jesus changed the water into wine, that was a wedding banquet here on earth. And it was pretty incredible. There are some spiritual implications in turning water into wine. But there's a, a heavenly wedding banquet that we've all learned about in the book of Revelation and chapter 19. Let's just turn there for a second. Put a little bookmark or something in Matthew 22. We're coming right back. Revelation chapter 19 I'm going to begin with verse 6. Again, this is John, who was given the revelation, writing these things down. And he said, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now take note of verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now notice that that's very important that you see that, that the fine linen was given her to wear at this banquet. Okay? And then it says the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this, and again, I just remind you that this is John speaking, At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John wants to bow down before this angel, and the angel says, get up from there. I'm just, an, I'm just a servant like you. I'm a fellow servant. Get up. Worship God. And then he says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, now Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 22, is testifying... And this literally is a prophecy that he's testifying about as he tells this parable. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to the, those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Now imagine. Imagine the king having a wedding banquet for his son and people refusing to come. The whole idea that about an invitation to a wedding implies that there's a choice. Hey, do you want to go to the banquet or, or don't you want to go to the banquet? He says, many refused to come. Then he sent some more servants. And he said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So, this king who has this wedding banquet for his son seems pretty gracious because even though they ignored the invitations, he sends out some more servants and says, please, please come. Now, let's just for a second jump over to, um, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Keep your place there in Matthew 22. We're coming right back. This again is the parable of the great banquet. 
But I want to show you something that Matthew doesn't go into specifically, but Luke goes into it in a little more with a little more specifics. In verse 16 of chapter 14 in Luke's Gospel. Well, let, let's back up to verse 15. Verse 15 in chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This is what started this whole conversation, talking about the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies in verse 16, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike, they all alike, began to make excuses. And the first said, I've just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Luke goes into it a little in a little bit more detail. But notice, notice, Here's this banquet, and your Bible may say, with one voice, they all began to make excuse. Oh, you got the commercial excuse. You got the economical excuse. You got the family excuse. I can't come. I can't. I can't. I can't. So, now let's go back to Matthew's Gospel, because in chapter 22 and verse 5, Matthew records Jesus as saying, But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. Now, as you look at this, you see some of the people who received the invitation were just indifferent. They were just like, Yeah, whatever. I'm too busy. I got to go to work. You know, some went to the field, another to his business. But some were hostile. Some were hostile to the servants that were carrying this message. Hey, the master's prepared a banquet. Won't you come? And they were hostile. And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners. And invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now I think about that, both good and bad, because we've seen that in a couple other parables. You know, the parable with the fish, the net full of fish, and there were good fish and bad fish in there. And we see the, the, the sheep and the goats, you know, stuff like that. There's, there's the good and the bad. But, but I find it interesting here because in my mind, I'm thinking this through and I'm thinking all the things that I know about the wedding banquet and all the things that I, I know about God's invitation to come. He doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want to lose a one. 
His grace and His mercy. He keeps going after Him and He sends servants and servants. So I look at this and I see the king. Okay, the king, pretty obvious that the king is God. Pretty obvious that His Son is Jesus. Uh, pretty obvious that the, that the marriage feast is a, a union. He's trying to draw these people into a union with Himself. We see that in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the choosing of a bride for His Son, Jesus. Um, how about... Uh, those that were first bidden, those that first got the invitation, well, the Bible says that the gospel first went out to the Jews, didn't it? Right? And they just went, eh, whatever. You know, some of them did. Some of them were indifferent. But some of them were hostile, weren't they? The Bible tells us that they were, they were hostile toward the prophets. They killed the prophets and that the blood of the prophets were on their hands. So then the Lord sends more servants. The other servants... Well, how about the apostles? Another whole group going out. And now these guys go out and they say, well, don't worry about the ones who don't want to come. How about going to the ones who will, who will listen? And all of a sudden, even the Gentiles are invited to the banquet. This is, as we look at this in Matthew chapter 22, as we start out in this parable, we see we have a, a portrait here of human history from the law and the prophets all the way to the present day. You know what? The door is still open. The door's not closed. God is still inviting people to this wedding banquet. And there's still people who are indifferent and there's still people who are hostile toward God's invitation. I'm like, come on, it's an invitation to a wedding. What are you hostile about? You know? So it goes on to say that the servants went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But, verse 11... When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now, at first sight and at first read, you might go, well, wait a minute, you know, what's the distinction here between what they're wearing? I mean, after all, we know that God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inside. And what's the deal with what they're wearing? Well, we know because we read the ending that we need to have our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And the robes that you see that, were, that, it, that we just read about in those white linens that we read about in Revelation 19 were actually given to them. Given to them. When you look into history and you see this, they actually gave the guests wedding clothes to wear. Part of the invitation was extending these wedding clothes. No, wait a minute. There's a guy here who what, didn't have wasn't wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? See, the wedding clothes are they're provided by the host. And the man was speechless. No, speechless. Wait a minute. Just a minute ago, everybody had a speech. Everybody had an excuse. Everybody had... You know what? The scriptures say that when we stand before the Lord at one of the judgments whether it's the Bema Seat of Christ to receive the rewards for those that whose names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life or whether it's the white throne judgment for those that have rejected salvation through Jesus Christ it's going to be kind of an interesting deal because we're not going to have excuses there are going to be no excuses only the righteous judge making a righteous judgment 
And it says here, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Hmm. You know, I look at, first of all, how the Lord called out to his own people and they rejected him. And if you go back to um, verse 5 there where it says, But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Well, you know that that actually happened. That actually happened. That destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. We see the the son of Vespasian there that... Um, Titus and his armies going in and literally destroying, which was about 41 years after Jesus told this parable, by the way. It wasn't all that long after that they suffered the destruction. And Jesus prophesying, telling them over and over and over about the punishment of the hypocrite. We see that. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Now that's interesting because it doesn't say for many are invited, but few accept. It says many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus even had to tell the disciples, you know what, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You see, nobody can come to God unless God draws them. It's not his desire that any perish, but he gives man his will. He gives man his freedom to choose. Let's talk about a marriage here for a second. Um, not all of you are married, but uh, I'm sure all of you have attended weddings. And what, what kind of wedding would it be if uh, somebody was standing there with a shotgun saying, well, do you? <laughs> you know, the guy goes, I do. You know, looks at the woman, well, do you? Well, I do. Okay, well, but how would you know if there was love involved? You see, God never coerces anyone. He never forces anyone into a relationship with him. He'll never storm the door of somebody's heart and, you know, like Rambo, you know, kick the door down and come bust it in. He, he doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He invites he invites, he calls, he beckons. Hmm. Well then, the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. Now again, here's the one who came down from heaven <laughs> and they're going to trap Jesus in his word. I love this because they even try to use scripture. They try to use ethics. They try to use morals. They're trying to trip a guy up who has never sinned with morals and ethics and politics and I mean it's laughable this is really this is really a joke and and it says they're going to trap him in his words well he is the word he's the word of god he's the word made flesh and dwelling among us so they sent their disciples to him along with the herodians now the herodians were a political party um Herod here was actually in, in, in charge of the region that Jesus came from. The Herodians are a political party here. Now they're trying to trap Jesus. 
They're trying to trap them into making a political statement so that they can brand him a traitor to Rome. If we can make this guy out to be a traitor, then we got him. Like if he's betraying Caesar, all right, so let's, let's get him to make a statement like we shouldn't pay taxes or something like that. If we can get him to say something like this, then we got him. All right, listen to this. So they, that being the Pharisees, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, I got to ask myself, what in the world would bring the Herodians together with the Pharisees? You know that Pharisees means separated ones. Okay? These Pharisees, what? Only their opposition to Jesus could bring these guys together. Have you ever noticed that? There are some things about um, cults and the occult. There are some things about them all that parallel each other. It's really wild. And, and the one thing that I find is that they constantly attack is the Jesus of the Bible. You know, you can believe in Jesus. You can even believe in the Christ Spirit. You can believe in, you know, as long as it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Not Jesus of Nazareth. You can believe in Jesus if you want. I mean, Hindus believe in Jesus. They have 350 million gods. What's 350 million and one? They'll, they'll accept Jesus. But he's, you understand, he's just another of the millions of deities. As soon as you say, no, wait a minute, the Jesus of the Bible said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, then they go, oh, well, you know, we don't believe in that Jesus. Not that Jesus. We've, so they're in opposition to the Jesus of the Bible. Well, look at The Pharisees and the Herodians would never be together on anything except opposition to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then. Now, by this point, <laughs> you know that Jesus is going, yeah, right. You know, this is, beware of flattery. Beware when people start greasing you up one side and down the other. When they start buttering you, beware. Just put up your guard and, and say, okay, wait a minute, what's, what's coming here now? I mean, I do that when people come in here the first time they come to a church service and they say, oh, pastor, you know, this is the greatest church and you're the best teacher. And I'm like, okay, well, there's the kiss of death. You know, I'll never see them again. I mean, that's just what I'm thinking. You don't think Jesus sees through these hypocrites? Let's see if he does. Verse 17, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intents, said, <laughs> what does your Bible say? You hypocrites. He, Jesus saw right through it, didn't he? He saw right through it. You can see through the buttering up. You hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, and you guys know this. I mean, we've studied this how many times. And Jesus, in his brilliance, in his wisdom, 
And by the way, the Bible says that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ Jesus. He is wisdom. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. In all of his brilliance, he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and they went away. All right, one trap. Jesus slipped out of it. He's aware of their flattery. And they didn't get him to make some kind of statement against Rome that they could hold against him. He just said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. If Caesar has tax coming, pay him the tax. If, if God has some due, how about pay God what he's got coming? That's a whole other ball game. That's a whole other thought. So they went away. They didn't want to deal with that. Well, that same day, the Sadducees, and I love this because Matthew goes on to explain who the Sadducees were. He says, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, that's why they were sad, you see. That's one way to remember that. These are the liberal religious party, and now they try to, to trap him with the Mosaic Law. The Sadducees. They are sad, you see, because they don't believe in life after the grave. How sad is that? That's, that's incredibly sad. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in life after the grave. What, you know, Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, here's their hypothetical. All right? Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Are you with me? Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Now, that's, that's kind of like saying, you know, Jesus, can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? You know, because you say God is, he can do anything. He's omnipotent. He can do anything. Can he create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, if he can, then he can't do everything because he can't lift it. And if he can't create a rock big enough that he can't lift it, then he can't do everything because he can't create a rock big You understand what I'm saying? It's not logical. It's not a logical question. And if we were just talking about earthly things, these guys might have an excuse. But we're talking about heavenly things here. And Jesus answers this question from a heavenly perspective and shows them that your question isn't even logical. That what you're asking isn't even logical. We read this and we, and we just went, who would even come up with something? I mean, if they had spent half the time seeking the Lord that they spent coming up with this dumb question, they would have come to know that Christ was the Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? People put their energy into the dumbest things. Now here you have these guys asking this question and Jesus replies in verse 29, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now there's two things. They got, they got a serious problem here. 
They're asking these questions because they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Do you know that the two gentlemen, the two Christians that I've been talking with about witnessing to the Jehovah Witnesses could respond with the same answer? You're asking these questions because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And, and they really don't. I mean, many of the people that come knocking to your door and they have a Bible in their hand don't know their Bibles. And the fact that a Christian can't take the Bible from them and, pay, and, and open it up and show them the error of their way is an indictment on the church. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves that we can't show them in the Word of God the error in their thinking. I mean, we need... It, it's an indictment. It really is. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us and to show us and to plant the seed of His Word so deep in us that we can say, you know what? You don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And it's a very simple thing. It's a very simple thing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a... a we're coming back here to Matthew 22, so keep your place, okay? But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is a very familiar passage of, of Scripture to many of you, and, and, um, and it should be, it well should be. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because these are Christians, but they're, they're in a mess. And they're in, they're in a mess because they haven't devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Had they done that, they wouldn't be in the carnal state that they're in. Paul wouldn't have to be writing these guys and say, I'd like to write to you guys as though you were mature, he says in chapter 3. But I can't. I have to write to you as babes in Christ because you're carnal. They were into the world. They weren't into Christ. Now here's the deal. If you look at... Um, I want to start with um, verse 17 in chapter 1. Paul says to them, For Christ did... For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And you know that that means good news. And of course, preaching is a, is a, a form of uh, sharing the good news with the lost, with those that don't know. He says, I've, I, I've, I've been called to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, remember the two things that Jesus just told these guys. He told the Sadducees, you're in error you're, you're in serious error because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So Paul is about to say what this power of God is. Stay with me. But to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. I want you to understand that the gospel, the cross of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation. Now, if you don't know that, you're going to be in error. You will be in serious error. Error to the point of missing the wedding banquet. Error to the point of you're not saved. You're not born again. You're not on your way to the kingdom of heaven. You're on your way to hell because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. So he establishes that the power of God is the cross of Christ. We're going to get into this a little bit as we talk about the law tonight. But back in Matthew 23, Jesus tells them 
that they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then in verse 30, he says, at the resurrection. Now remember, these guys don't believe in the resurrection. So most likely he's lost their attention already. But he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say we become angels, but we'll have some of the characteristics or the abilities. He says they will be like the angels in heaven in terms of not marrying or being given in marriage. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? Now, he's calling these guys on the carpet saying, listen, you need to read the scriptures. You need to know the scriptures. Haven't you read what God has said? And then he goes on to say, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he points this out. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. What's he saying? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't dead, you guys. They're living. That's what he's saying to them. And if they're saying, well, we don't believe in the resurrection, then they're saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. Well, then don't call God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see where this is going? You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't call God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then say there is no resurrection. Because you have to say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. And he says, they're not dead. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, they should be. (laughs) They should be astonished at his teaching. He's God in the flesh. He's telling them of heavenly things that they have no means of understanding other than him telling them. Again, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 says that in Christ Jesus lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, do you know what that is? That's a lawyer. He's a lawyer, okay? This ought to be good. Tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now that's a pretty interesting statement that Jesus would say that. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. I want to show you, after Jesus made this comment, because Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. So keep your finger there in Matthew 22 and turn to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to show you this one more time. This this question about the the great commandment in this lawyer, I want to show you this because I, I think this is really cool. It begins in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. And it starts out very similar. It says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. And then he quotes what's known as the Shema. The Shema. 
Every Jew would know this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. He doesn't leave it there. He says the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Okay? That's an interesting response. And from then, no one dared ask him any more questions. What an interesting response. And I want you to keep that in mind as we make our way back to Matthew 22. Because Jesus says that all all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And now Jesus leaves them with a question. And I like this because sometimes a question will answer more than an answer will answer. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? You realize that that means Messiah. I'd be like Jesus saying, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Okay, well, every Jew knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Every Jew knew that. They knew about the bloodline. Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, and that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls him Lord? For he says, and then he quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And that's a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus quotes the Psalms and he says, How is it then, if he's the son of David, that by the Spirit David calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Hmm. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus asks one question and he silences the Pharisees. He talks to the Sadducees and there's some very interesting questions raised here of Jesus. Only the Messiah could give such wise answers as these. And yet Jesus has the patience to sit with these guys and talk to them about things of the law, things of the prophets. Who is the Christ? Who is this Messiah? That's a question we all have to wrestle with. 
this kingdom that you're talking about, how do I get there? What do you think about the Messiah? Well, it's interesting that apart from the Messiah, we don't have a prayer of seeing the kingdom of God. We saw that study in John chapter 3 where Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. But there's some, some things concerning the law of God when this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, what are the greatest commands? What are the greatest commands? And then when Jesus tells him what the greatest commands are, this lawyer says to him, well spoken. That's true. There is only one God to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commands. When Jesus saw that he had that wisdom, he said, you're not far from the kingdom. He didn't say, welcome to the kingdom. But there was a man that he said, welcome to the kingdom. There was a man that he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And that was the one of the thieves on the cross that turned to him and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A little bit earlier he was mocking Jesus. But at this point, at this one point in his life, he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. He recognizes that he's the king. He recognizes he has a kingdom and he's on his way there. And he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus turned to him and said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. No, I look at that and I go, well, what's up with that? Here's a thief hanging on the cross. Here's a lawyer who knows the law, understands the law, believes the law, but he's not in the kingdom, but this thief hanging on the cross is. How did that happen? How does that happen? Well, there's some things that the law of God cannot do. There's some things that the law of God cannot do. That might sound arrogant, might sound even blasphemous to you, but let me show you. Let me just show you a few of them, okay? If you'll turn with me, um, first of all, to Matthew chapter 5. We'll stay right in that book for a minute. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. This is um, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is really the law of God intensified. He takes, the, he takes the law and he cranks it up a few notches. He says things like, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. I tell you, if you even have hatred for your brother, you've already murdered him. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. I tell you, if you so much as lust after a woman in your heart. It's the intensified law. It's Jesus saying, you know what? You can't keep the law, and I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what the law demands. Okay, it's not about... Jesus didn't say, well, I'll tell you what. Be as good as you can, you know. And certainly a loving God will accept anything that falls short of that. You know, I mean, just do your best. Jesus never told us to do our best. He said, be perfect. Be perfect. That, that's pretty heavy. 
Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this one to you. It's in Leviticus. Jot it down, though. In fact, you can jot it down right there by Matthew 5.48. Leviticus 19 and the first four verses. Leviticus chapter 19, 1 through 4, says this. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Don't turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Now, here's the two-word summary of the law in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Here's the two-word summary. Be holy. Here's the New Testament summary of the law. Be perfect. Oh, okay. So what chance do you and I have? What chance do you and I have? Now, I'm going to run through a few verses of Scripture here, and I just want to show you some things that the law of God is enable, enable to do. It's not able to do. You jot them down, okay? The first one is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. If you have time to turn there, go ahead. Otherwise, just listen. I'll, I'll, I'll just read it to you, okay? The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Oh, that's pretty heavy. What's, what's uh, the writer of Hebrews saying here in chapter 7, verse 18 and 19? He's saying that the law makes nothing perfect. You can't be made perfect by keeping the law. It's clear. There's a better hope that's introduced by which we draw near to God. Understand, the law makes nothing perfect. I'm going, what's up with that? First of all, the law of God demands perfection. The law of God can't provide perfection. Okay, well, well how, God, how can you do that? Isn't that unfair? What are you thinking? You demand perfection and then say that the, the same law that demands perfection says it can't provide perfection? What's up with that? Well, you know what? That's fine because the rest of that verse says the Lord has another way to provide what the law demands. Listen carefully. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. I want you to catch this. This is very important. The law makes nothing perfect. Okay, Listen to this. Galatians 2 verse 16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. No, he says that like two or three ways. It's like you can't possibly mistake that. He says you can't be justified by observing the law. He says that you're justified by faith in Christ not by observing the law. We've put our faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, how many different ways do you need to hear it? Now, what's, what's justification? Justification is starting out with God. Justification is what happens at your spiritual birth. When you put your faith in God, you're justified. That's an instantaneous thing. 
Sanctification, that's another thing. Sanctification is a process, and it's the whole idea of you becoming mature in the Lord. You're maturing in the Lord. You're growing with God. Okay, But I want you to understand that the law makes nothing perfect, neither in the area of justification or sanctification. It makes no difference. And I'm going to make a statement here that's going to sound harsh, but weigh it out. Weigh this out. No one can be a Christian unless they understand that it's not by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't be a Christian unless you understand that. And so many people, if you ask, well, you know, where are you going to spend your eternity? Well, I'm going to heaven. Well, why are you going to heaven? Well, because I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, that'd be great if the Bible didn't already specifically tell us in so many different ways that the law can't make anyone, anyone perfect. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says to the church in the province of Galatia, he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Paul says, the moment you believed the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's about faith in Christ. That's how you receive the Spirit of God. Well, then he goes on in the next verse, verse 3 of Galatians 3. Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? How many of us, and we do that, I, I'm, you know, if, if you said guilty, okay, the guilty raise your hand. You know, it's me because when I became a Christian, I mean, the first three years, I was like, okay, now, I, now I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. Watch this, God, watch this. I can do it. You know, <laughs> God's going, you liar. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> you know, no. The, but the reality is, you want to, you want to, you want to. Reality is. Don't try to finish up in the flesh what God began in the Spirit. The reality is we need to keep a short account with God. We need to go to Him every day. And it's the history of Israel, too. The, the history is that the law can't justify, can't sanctify. And, and I remember somebody talking to me about promise keepers. Now, I don't have anything against promise keepers. You know, if, if, if having a brother uh, hold you accountable to things, if that's helping, hey, you know, whatever, whatever helps. You know, I just think of the first promise keepers meeting that, was, that took place at Mount Sinai where they all said to Moses, listen, Mo, you go ask him what we're supposed to do. You come back and tell us and we'll do whatever he says. Well, how did that turn out? Remember that promise? It didn't turn out very well. And that's what it's like when we're trying to serve God in the flesh, trying to keep the law, trying to live by the law. The law can't make anything. It's our faith in Christ that makes it perfect. Now, don't misunderstand me because I'm not saying the law is bad. I don't think the law is a bad thing, but it can only do what it was designed to do. What the law was designed to do was to show us that we need Jesus. We need a Savior. We need a Messiah. We can't do it without Him. That's what the law was designed to do. The law was never designed to do anything but bring us to Christ. The Bible says it's the schoolmaster, the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. So, 
Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' teachings there, the Sermon on the Mount, it's an intensification of the law. Remember, he kept saying, but I say to you. So, what can the law of God do? Well, these three things. It reveals God's character. What did we just read? Be holy because I'm holy. That's what God said. You be holy because I'm holy. Be perfect because I'm perfect. God wants us to follow in His steps, in His character. So it reveals God's character, number one. Number two, it reveals God's standards. It's really God's measure of perfection. It's His measure of holiness. Let me give you an example. If, um, if I'm... Uh, I used to be six feet tall when I was in high school. I'm not anymore because gravity took hold. And, and so now I'm like five, ten and a half or something. Let's say you took out a tape measure and you held the tape measure up to me and it said five, ten and a half. And I said, well, give me that tape measure. And I cut an inch and a half off of it and I ate it. Would it make me six feet tall? You understand what I'm saying? The law is the measure of holiness. You can't eat the law and be more holy. Okay, you get what I'm saying? So if the tape measure is just a measure, it's just a measure, and it says you're 5'10", you're not 6B, you didn't make it. Well, give me that tape measure, I'll just eat an inch and a half. And so many Christians are trying to live their Christian life that way. I'll just need to eat more law. No, that's not going to do it. That's just the tape measure. Look, you can eat all the tape measures you want, you're not going to get any taller. Okay? And the other thing is, number one, it reveals God's character. Number two, it reveals God's standard. Number three, it reveals God's will. Don't you want to know God's will? Boy, I want to know God's perfect will. And I don't want to know His passive will. I don't, know, I don't want to know, Lord, what will you put up with? What will you allow me to do? I want to know His perfect will. I want to know where God wants me. Now, i got time for just a couple more quick ones here. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. Just jot the reference down. Uh, you'll have this on the tape and you can look this up. It says, now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So there it is. The law is able to silence every mouth. The law is able to make the whole world accountable. And the law gives us the knowledge of sin. Tells us what sin is. Now, I, I, I want to do what's right because I want to please God. Because He loved me so much that He gave His only Son to pay the price that I could never pay. He lived the perfect life. So, I talked a little bit now about, about the law, what it is, what it can't do, what its purpose is. I want to tell you one thing in closing, and that's this. The fulfillment of the law. You remember in Matthew chapter 5 in that Sermon on the Mount, there's one verse where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law that we could never fulfill. You know, the, the, the law of God has not been destroyed. It's not been removed. It's been fulfilled. 
It's been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's the most important thing. So, how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, number one, by example, his very life. There was only one man that ever lived a sinless life. One. One man. One human being that lived his entire life without violating the law of God. He was without sin. So, number one, by example. Number two, by his death. In his death, he fulfilled the penalty for the lawbreakers. Every one of us, he paid the price in his death for those of us that have broken the law. He died in our place. And then number three. First of all, you have number one by example, number two by his death, and number three by empowering us. By empowering us. That's how Jesus fulfills the law. He empowers us. The same Jesus Christ that never sinned now lives inside of me. And he lives inside of you. Because you said, Jesus... I want to open my heart to you and I want to ask you to come and live my life. Live in me. Live through me. The same Jesus that never sinned now lives in me. I, I, I look to and I depend on Jesus living in me. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 24 but now, I'm going to close with this, okay? But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Is that incredible? What were the righteous requirements of the law? <laughs> the righteous requirements of the law were this. Be holy, be perfect. You know what? If that were the end of the story, we'd all be in serious trouble. Be holy, be perfect. I'm in trouble. So where's the hope in that? Well, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, I thank you for this Bible study tonight. Because when I hear these men approaching you in Matthew chapter 22 here, and and asking you these questions and trying to trip you up. And, and I know that you're the answer. You are the answer. And yet they think they understand, think they know, think they have it, believe they're saved. Father, there's so many in this world. And there may be some in this room, there may be some listening by tape, Lord, that, that really have it confused, that it's about keeping the law. What's the greatest commandment? Lord, I can't help but thinking of the person that asked Jesus, what must I do to do the works of the Father? And Jesus responded, believe in the one the Father sent. Father God, I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. I thank you for bringing this truth to our hearts and minds tonight. And, and thank you, Lord, for showing us that it's not about keeping the law, 
It's about knowing the one who fulfilled the law. Thank you for that relationship we have with you through your son Jesus. We bless your name tonight. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd help us give it away. And I thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.